Okay, and we are recording. Okay. Welcome to the 111st episode of the Star Trek Academy podcast, looking today at Strange New World Season 2, Episode 8, Under the Cloak of War. I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup. Now, we always start these things with a brief summary of the episode, so that if you're listening down the line, you can refresh your memory before we get into our discussion. And this week, with our summary of Under the Cloak of War, we have Dr. Michael Merrick. A Klingon negotiator who has defected to the Federation is serving as an ambassador, Ra, and comes on board the Enterprise. His arrival triggers bad memories of the war on the parts of several crew members, particularly Ortegas, Mbenga, and Chapel. We see multiple flashbacks back to the war when the ambassador was called the Butcher of Jagal. And we see the first meeting of Chapel and Mbenga in a Starfleet wartime mass unit, treating in particular one critically injured victim. At a dinner, Pike hosts for the ambassador. The ambassador charms most of the crew present, but the conversation turns to the war and the Remain Klingon slogan we got in Discovery Season 1. Later, Ra and Mbenga engage in a kind of a Klingon judo boxing match, during which Ra hopes to make Mbenga an ally in enhancing relations between the two powers. Ra, it is told, killed his own men because of their atrocities. We see a flashback in which Mbenga uses his Protocol 12 super soldier drug to go in alone and stop the massacre, and he comes close to killing Ra back during the war. Mbenga says Ra turned Mbenga into a monster, and Mbenga says he is the true butcher of Jagal. In the Enterprise sickbay, they struggle, and Mbenga kills Ra, but the veterans of Jagal cover up the killing, claiming that Ra attacked Mbenga. How does everyone deserving a second chance balance against justice, the episode asks. Mbenga concludes that some things break in a way that cannot be repaired, only managed. And that's a brief summary of an episode that is just jam-packed with ethical and philosophical questions and dilemmas. Right, and we'll get to those in a moment here. Thank you for that, Michael. At this point, though, we're going to talk about some production details, design, continuity with past Trek, and the like. And Rodney, this episode is just a visceral exploration of the impact of war, including why we fight to begin with, how war affects soldiers during the combat, and particularly the long-term after effects. And as I said, it's just filled with philosophical statements and ethical challenges, which we will talk to in turn. And I'm afraid we won't get to all of them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here. I think this episode may have been intended to help explain the antipathy members of Starfleet had toward Klingons in the original series. If you think back to some of those episodes, some of our Starfleet heroes really hated Klingons. And if I'm right about that, then we can also see season one of Discovery as doing basically the same thing, helping to explain why members of Starfleet were so opposed to Klingons. 
Yeah, and the, the Klingon War was not just starships firing at starships. It was a lot of ground action and uh, a lot of terrible things happening. We have kind of already known, but we learned in detail in this episode. We get many flashback scenes in this episode, and it, they're set at a, a forward base during the Klingon War uh, on the ground, and Abenga and Chapel, who are meeting for the first time and serving in what's essentially an improvised MASH hospital. At some time in the past, Mbenga was apparently a soldier, apparently a very effective black ops operative. He developed the, the protocol drug that makes a person a super soldier. But during the war, he had already left that behind and was focused on saving lives as a doctor. Yeah, and this is probably where he devised that technique that he used to prevent his daughter's illness from progressing last season, because we see him doing the same thing, saving Alvarado's pattern in the transporter buffer until they're able to treat his injuries later. And he says in this episode, he's done that before also. Yeah. Speaking of the forward base, did you recognize the chief medical officer who said everyone calls him Buck? I think longtime fans of Star Trek, everybody recognized him. Sure. Well, two or three days after the episode came out, there were lots of articles on the internet about it. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I recognized him right away. It is Clint Howard, who as a fairly young child played Baylock in the Corbomite Maneuver and has also appeared briefly in, I think it's a total of five Star Trek episodes, including one fairly recently on Discovery. I thought it would have been kind of cute if everyone had called his character Ben instead of Buck. Because Clint Howard may still be best known for his child actor role in the 1960s TV series, Gentle Ben, about a boy who had a very, very large pet bear. Oh, okay. I missed that one. Michael. No, you're kind of a youngster. <laughs> Speaking of Buck, getting Chapel appointed as head nurse cost him a case of Romulan wine, he said. Mm -hmm. But this is years before the episode Balance of Terror so how's their trade going on with the Romulans, even if it's illegal mm. trade where we don't even know what they look like? Remember that because of Pike experiencing his alternate future last season, he's supposed to be kind of the only person in the main timeline federation who even knows what a Romulan looks like. Yeah, good question. We again see Ortegas playing the role of a bigot. We saw that in the alternate timeline in the season one finale, which yeah. you just referred to. In this episode, she says she doesn't trust Ra because she knows Klingons. Now, of course, she served in this brutal war, and that is still fresh in their minds. And that might explain her bigotry if if it doesn't excuse it. Yeah, she and Omega and Chapel all tried to be professional because they knew that the captain needed them to be at this dinner and needed mm -hmm. them to behave appropriately, but it was really tough for them because of their past experiences. Some other points I, I want to note, I was a little surprised to see all the medical staff in black because like across all of time, medical folks tend to wear white or at least mm -hmm. light pastel colors. I guess the camp was under bombardment and they didn't want to be more visible to the enemy than they had to. Plus it was just, uh, stylistically, the Star Trek series is much darker, have less lights turned on than, than most other Star Trek series. Yeah, it's dark. And this just occurred to me, Michael, maybe 
it's symbolic. You know, they're not wearing white, they're wearing black instead, yeah. which might communicate that they've been sort of co-opted by this ugly war in a way that they're not just saviors anymore, but they have been infected with this malady that Mbengo refers to later, um, that they're fighting against in this war. That, that yeah. just occurred to me. Yeah, and in our culture, in Western culture at least, black has a connotation. I mean, black darkness has a connotation of dark emotions and uh, bad things that go with it as opposed to white which is positive, uh, a color of purity and things in, mm -hmm. in, in culture. Speaking of the colors of things, I'm confused. Delton parsley is lavender in color and it's liquid. Yeah. I How guess do you get so. lavender colored liquid parsley? <laughs> Although I guess I have a bottle of liquid smoke in my cupboard. So maybe, you know, it's a different planet and all that kind of thing. The Kelsey May was a different shaped ship than we have ever seen before. It wasn't, didn't have a saucer on it. It was completely different. The front part of it actually reminded me a lot of the front of the Pan American shuttle in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Okay. And also the shuttle on which Chapel arrived at Jagal in the flashback is kind of shuttle shaped as we expect, but the nacelles are above the fuselage, not below. And I think that's new, at least in on-screen Star Trek. I don't know if that kind of thing's appeared in, in the video games or what, but I think in terms of on-screen Starfleet, the, the nacelles pointing up from a, a shuttle body uh, is new. You know, Rodney, I've never had to work in a mass casualty situation, uh, and I'm glad of that, but I can't help mentally comparing this forward base, believe it or not, to the TV series MASH. Even the announcements, incoming transport, yeah. really parallel the incoming choppers in MASH. And we might touch on this a little bit later, this process of triage and deciding who is likely to survive if we give them medical care, who we need to prioritize and who we need to deprioritize. It's a tough situation, but uh, as well as maybe you can in a series like this, they uh, portrayed it in a way that people could relate to. Yeah, I can only imagine because I've never had that experience either. You know, I've never served in the military, but uh, people have been watching TV for a while. You know, when you see that, those flashbacks, I mean, the first thing that's likely to pop into your head is, oh, this is like MASH. Yeah, it is. Uh, people in the medical field, I'm sure, have done training exercises for mass casualties where people playing the role of injured and it's a very similar situation a whole bunch of people come in you can't take care of all of them simultaneously and you have to decide who can wait who needs to go in immediately during these scenes uh, in the past uh, well and even on on the enterprise did you note that mbenga's face is often portrayed as drenched in sweat I think that's to indicate the stress he has, is under. And uh, he, most of the time, at least, he's keeping it under good control. But, uh, but there's a lot of moisture on his face uh, that, that symbolizes that stress. And the dinner scene, I thought, was reminiscent of Kirk's dinner for the Klingon Chancellor Gorkhan in mm -hmm. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Yeah. There was no Romulan ale this time, but the pleasantries in both of these dinners soon degraded into hostility. Well, why don't we go ahead and turn the page at this point and let's talk about meaning.
Yeah. So we're trying to locate here the messages that the writers and producers may have wanted to convey to us. And we can also talk about what we're taking from this episode, regardless of the intent of those writers and producers. And Rodney, this episode is just full of philosophical statements about war and ethical dilemmas, but to be honest, not many morals to the story, not many resolutions to these questions. You know, that's a very nice capsule summary of what I think what we're going to be discussing here. I just feel like, you know, in the time that we have to do this and get this out there, we can't do this episode justice. I mean, like you say, it's just chock full of interesting ideas and dilemmas. And it's a little frustrating, but we, we can at least give you a, I feel like a, a pretty good idea of what's at stake in this episode. Yeah. So some of these statements, Pike says, war is never the ideal option for resolving differences. Mm-hmm. And Benga speaks kind of the other side of the coin to what Pike said and says, we have to fight so the people we love can live in peace. And he says, if we don't fight, we don't win. Right. Other statements we heard, don't let hate ruin your soul. Peace is not a destination. It's a journey, a state of mind. The ultimate goal of the Federation is to make peace with its enemies. And in particular, we also have Mbenga's dilemma at the wartime base. The soldiers wanting him to go along on their raid because of his ability to be a super soldier, Mm -hmm. but it means killing. So he declines because he's about saving lives now. But the word arrives that the Klingons are killing civilians, including children, and both Klingon and human, civilians and children. So he takes the protocol drug, goes in alone, kills almost all of the combatant Klingons. Only the Klingon general, Ra, escapes. And Mbenga does this to save the lives of the civilians, in spite of what it clearly does to his own psychological well-being. Yeah, he says he he wanted to escape the war without it changing him. And and he says, I now see that's impossible. I have to complete this mission. I also got the sense that he was motivated by vengeance. I mean, not just to save lives, but also vengeance. Chapel, as he goes off, she tells him to make the people in charge of the slaughter pay. And maybe that's one reason why he said that Ra turned him into a monster. You know, and apparently he's a very effective killer. But when we see him in this episode, he's done with killing and here he is back at it again. I have to say that Mbenga reminds me of another character in another series, and that is Shepard Book in Firefly. Oh, okay. The details weren't revealed on screen, but Book had clearly been some kind of operative in the past, but had repented and joined a religious order. And that is at least what Ross says about him, his bad experiences, particularly at Jagal, caused him to change his mind and work for peace. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to mention Mbenga's other ethical decision in this episode, and that is to delete the transporter pattern buffer in which the critically injured Alvarado is being held so that other wounded can transport in. They say, and this is kind of a plot device, but they say the transporter cannot function to allow others to beam in to be saved if Alvarado is still in there. And so Mbenga makes a needs of the many decision and lets Alvarado go. That's exactly right. When Chapel asks him what he did, he said he saved lives. For Chapel, it's a really hard dilemma and we see her uh, agonizing over it, but Mbenga acts decisively. He knows 
what he feels is the right thing to do. You know, Rodney, as we've mentioned many times, Star Trek often refutes the logic that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, but not this time. Mm-hmm. Now, in another Star Trek episode, another series, they might have found some technobabble way to save Alvarado, download him into a tricorder or something like that, but that wouldn't serve the plot this time, so that's not what they did this time. Yeah, I mean, this episode is about, among many other things, you know, how war changes people and changes them permanently. And this decision that Mbenga has to make, I mean, it's a terrible decision. But that's, I suppose, what happens in war. You know, you're put in this position of having to make these terrible decisions where there's no good answer. And I think there's another way in which Ra, as Mbenga says, turned him into a monster. They were forced to kill Alvarado, that's what he did, in order to save lives. And as you pointed out, Mbanga, he's about saving lives now. And these kinds of utilitarian dilemmas, they're disturbing to think about. And even if you decide to do what has the best consequences, you still feel like a monster, I think. Rodney, it's like that philosophical dilemma that I'm sure as a philosopher you've come across many times. Do you divert the trolley car and it mm. kills one person on the alternate track, or do you let the trolley go ahead and crash and kill all of the others on board? That's exactly right. Now, some people, they say that this is obvious. Um, again, if you're in Benga's situation, you might feel the same way. You're here choosing to save more rather than fewer lives, but in erasing the transporter buffer, he's throwing the switch, taking active steps to change the track that the trolley is on, which makes him culpable for killing Alvarado, who's on that one track. So they think that, you know, taking positive action is worse than killing somebody is worse than just allowing people to die. That is not doing anything and just letting the trolley continue on its present course and killing people. It's a hard question and there's no easy answer to it. I did think, Rodney, that it's interesting that Mbenga is accustomed to using the technique you talked about and that we have been talking about and putting an endangered patient in the pattern buffer as a kind of stasis until better medical facilities or treatments available. And as you mentioned, it's the same thing he did with his terminally ill daughter in season one. On the other hand, in the Next Generation episode, Relics, we were led to believe that data in the pattern buffer degrades over time. And remember... Scotty had to invent something new in order for him to survive for all those years in the Gentleman transporter buffer. Mbenga's log entries at the beginning and the end of the episode mention Biobed 2, which at the beginning of the episode is broken, and at the end it is working satisfactorily due to repairs. And I think the bed is a metaphor for Mbenga himself, broken because of the memories Rock brings back to the surface, and then repaired to a certain extent by his experiences at the end of the episode. At least he hopes they are repaired. Yeah, I I think this is obviously symbolic. I think the symbolism is broader. I think it's symbolic not just of Mbenga, which I agree with, but I took it as symbolic of soldiers in general traumatized by war. Now, he says that the bed hasn't been the same since the Gorn attack on Finibus III, which you might remember from last season. And at the end of the episode, he says, I know it's only a matter of time before it shuts down again. Some things break in a way that can never be repaired, only managed. 
And this sounds an awful lot like what Chapel says about her experiences of the war. She tells Spock that war doesn't leave you. It can bury itself, but it's always there. And that sounds as if they are permanently broken by their experiences and, and they can only manage this condition. They can't cure it. You know, Rodney, in my younger years, I knew a lot of people who'd been in World War II and even in D-Day, and they almost never talked about it. And if so, only superficially, not dredging up deep memories. Mm -hmm. So I, I can understand that a lot of what happens in that kind of situation, you don't want to revisit at all, maybe. Yeah, again, and I can only imagine, you know, never having been in that kind of a situation. I was going to say, I think one of the central themes in this episode concerns redemption and justice. And I believe you talked about that earlier. Are these mutually exclusive, right? Pike seems to think that if Ra has redeemed himself, then punishing him would be inappropriate. That's what he seems to say. Now, Mbenga disagrees with this, of course. His issue with Ra is that he's a war criminal and he never paid for his crimes. So even if he has redeemed himself, he thinks that some crimes simply cannot be forgiven. And there are some related ideas here that complicate this episode. Forgiveness is one of them. Benga says there are just some things I can't forgive. And another is peace. Pike says, how can we represent a federation that believes in peace if we say that some people aren't allowed to make up for their past? And I don't think it's so clear cut personally. I think justice is also important to peace. And so that's an issue. There's also this question whether redemption is always possible. Some crimes can be redeemed, but Ortegas doesn't think it's always possible, especially for somebody like Raw. Pike seems to disagree. There's a lot of stuff going on here that I wish we had more time to talk about. Now, I want to talk about Ra a little bit more. Uh, and again, he was the general at Jigal, but he later defected to the Federation and is now acknowledged as an effective ambassador for peace. He's just come from a star system where the parties of different planets have been at odds with each other for years. And he is successful in part because of telling his own story. Yeah, and apparently he's quite good at it. And Uhura, at the beginning of the episode, mentions his diplomatic successes. And I think the idea here is that he's doing a lot of good as an ambassador. And that's a utilitarian justification, isn't it, for having him in this current position? Yeah, his own story of wrongdoing and repentance kind of gives him leverage in settling disputes between others because he can say, I've been right where you are. And that includes other parties, but also improving relations between the Klingons and the Federation, apparently. But uh, as we've said, those on Enterprise who were in the war still distrust him. They remain mostly professional in dealing with him, but it's clear underneath that there is a lot of emotion, at least bordering on, on hate. And we see that embodied in the main characters in Benga, Chapel, and Ortegas. There are a couple of extras in the background who we see facial expressions that kind of say the same thing. And it's important to remember, Ra is lying when he tells his story. Mm -hmm. He's called yeah. the Butcher of Jagal. He says that his soldiers were killing civilians and therefore he killed them. However, it's revealed in the episode that it was Mbenga who really killed them. Mbenga says he was the real Butcher of Jagal. Rock simply made his escape and then used a false narrative to gain status when he defected. 
and then when negotiating among these other groups in conflict. Yeah, as Mbenga puts it, Ra is using the blood on Mbenga's hands to make himself into a saint. And you might say Mbenga used the blood on Ra's dagger to gain justice because the blood that Mbenga himself carried on the dagger when he killed the Klingons is taken as evidence that Ra killed them. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to try to understand what is Ra's real motivation here. He, he talks a good talk about seeking yeah. redemption. And maybe he really is, but he's still lying about his change of heart. Is he also lying to himself? Or is this really a calculated deception, which is what he claims? If it's a deception, is it just a cold calculation of what simply will benefit him? Is all his jovial humor and peeling personality just an act? Or is his motivation really meritorious because telling a better story does give him more influence in peace negotiations. So I think as a story element, redemption is often very powerful in a storytelling uh, character arc, in fiction particularly. We mentioned Shepard Book, science fiction and fantasy genre particularly. Redemption's also, it's the story of Darth Vader, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Angel, Xena, Snape. Almost any fictional bad guy who experiences a change of heart and helps the hero in the end and if you think across all of our stories that we enjoy, that happens fairly often. So I think Rock probably is trying to make up for past wrongs. But as Mbenga points out, Rock is doing it based on a lie and a lie that makes him, Rock, out to be better than he really is. Yeah. And Michael, I've been trying to make sense of this myself. <laughs> you know, it's not really spelled out, I don't think, for the viewers. You know, what exactly is driving Raw here? And I think his motivations are probably pretty complicated. I personally think he might be telling the truth when he says that after Jagal, his ideals shifted and he's motivated now by a desire for peace. But he has these self interested motivations also. I don't think he could go on living in the Klingon Empire if he had fled the battlefield, right? That would be cowardice. Or if he had killed his own men. So I think the Federation is a safe harbor for him. And as a reformed Klingon, he can escape punishment for his war crimes. So there's a self-interested motivation there also. But I think a, an ideal shift would also explain this apparent desperate need he has for redemption. And that's driving him to be a peacemaker now, or so I think. He also insists that he help Mbenga heal. He's weirdly compulsive about this, and he's insisting that Mbenga join him at the next peace conference, and he simply will not take no for an answer. Mbenga practically begs Ra to leave him alone, and he just will not let it go. And a desperate need for redemption might explain that. You can see that going on. He's constantly seeking uh, the approval of others who also believe in the idea of peace. Right. That's that's a good point. Rodney, it's interesting that the concept of Klingon honor doesn't really come up in this episode. Remember, the Klingon leadership in the war was made mm -hmm. up of followers of a Klingon fanatic, Takuvma who fomented the war for reasons that weren't particularly grounded in honor. On Jagal, killing non-combatant civilians would certainly not be honorable, nor would lying. Hmm. And the Next Generation episode, Heart of Glory, made that point clear. If Klingon honor was really a thing, 
Rockets say that he killed the dishonorable ones who were killing children. And I think he would have been accepted for doing that because he would have positioned himself as honorable and these others as not honorable. But past Klingon stories, notably Redemption in Next Generation, have led to the inescapable conclusion that the higher up you go <laughs> in the Klingon government and leadership, the more honor is lip service rather than reality. Uh, I don't think Rao is a sleeper agent, as Ortega suggested, but his motivation was still fundamentally self-serving, even if it results in good work. So paraphrasing what Chapel says at the end of the episode, we can't really look inside a person not to mention look inside a fictional character to completely really understand what makes them tick. There's one philosophical statement I didn't mention earlier that sometimes if you pretend something long enough, it becomes the truth. And this is kind of what Ra is doing, but it also reminds me of the Cary Grant quote from last episode that I always pretended to be someone I wanted to be until finally I became that someone or he became me. Remember that? Yeah. For Cary Grant and for Brad Boimler, who, who the quote was directed at, that's presumably a positive outcome. But we see today, we see untruths repeated again and again in our everyday lives, particularly in the form of political disinformation. But we're constantly being bombarded today with arguably false information. And if the same claim comes from multiple different directions, even if there's no evidence, it gets easier to believe. And, you know, it, it, I talked politics. It could be just as well, you know, eating Tide Pods being a good idea, <laughs> um, you know. And when you fact check something, the fact checking doesn't go anywhere near as widespread in distribution as the original claims did, the false claims. And continued repetition of false claims is not stopped by fact-checking them. Right. There's just too much out there. I remember reading somewhere that, you know, human beings, this is a cognitive error that we make of mistaking familiarity with truth. The more widely these falsehoods are dispersed, the more familiar they become, the more true they appear. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Even if the perpetrator later apologizes, you know, and we see that happen sometimes. The original claim still gets massively wider distribution than the retraction. And the same people who amplify the original claim often don't reshare the corrections as often. So the original statement remains in the minds of a lot of people, particularly if they've not just heard it from one person, but it's come from a dozen different directions, that familiarity factor. I, I keep hearing this, so there must be something to it. Yeah, and I also believe that, you know, when we hear propaganda in the moment, if we recognize it as such, we are able to disregard it. But after a certain amount of time, we retain that information, but forget the source, which makes us less resistant to that propaganda. That's true. And of course, today, I mean, there are lots of challenges relating to how this kind of information flows in social media. I'm not one that specifically blames social media, but there is a dynamic here. And I think that the Cary Grant quote and what Ra said himself is drawn from our current society in terms of the more you say it, the more you pretend to be a certain way, the more likely it is that people believe it. And maybe even that you become that, that kind of person you are claiming to be. And also, Rodney, the script makes a big point of the phrase, we got this. Chapel and, and Benga use it between themselves repeatedly. We got this, you got this, I got this. 
we hear that often, and it's a phrase that's usually used either to convey confidence and success. I got this. I know how to do it. I'm going to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Or to inspire an uncertain person to success. You know, I'm confident that you can do this. You got this. Mm -hmm. um, here, Chaplin and Benga use it between them when they're facing seemingly impossible challenges like that manual heart massage. But using this term between them is also a reminder that they have a much closer bond between them as a result of their experiences in the war together than they usually allude to in everyday life. It doesn't come across the same way as the frequent references to family and found family in recent Star Trek, but really it's a, a very strong connection between them, um, almost a family level connection that they rarely mention out loud. Yeah, who would have guessed in the original series that Mbenga and Chapel had this connection? Or even, and Mbenga was, what, he was a, a guest star in, was it two episodes? I can't remember. Chapel two was in episodes. many of them. And, and we would have guessed that she had these very dark experiences in her yeah. past either. Are we ready for final thoughts, Michael? What did you think of this episode? Rodney, it's a hard episode to watch because of all of these ethical questions that it presents. It's well-crafted. It's produced with very few of the usual, I wish they had done it different way points that we often talk about. In fact, if you've been keeping track, it's usually about the first half of the episode where we're talking about these pr production design questions. And we didn't have anywhere near as many of them today, but we had a lot more of the ethical and philosophical questions. And as the episode has caused us to think about these questions, to to encounter them i think it's a very powerful episode maybe not my favorite but it certainly accomplishes its intended purpose with the audience but did you note we don't really get answers to these ethical questions and challenges and dilemmas no we do not often star trek presents an ethical or a social issue and the lesson the producers and writers want us to take away is fairly clear at least if you think about it in this episode, it's not. Even the most fundamental question of giving people a second chance versus holding them accountable for past wrongdoings, it's not given a pat answer. Maybe it's because post-traumatic stress and other consequences of wartime experiences are not easy fixes, and so they're not easy to present in fictional form. But even Pike's very Star Trek-type anti-war statement about it not being the ideal solution is counterbalanced by Mbega's statements about having to fight so our loved ones can live in peace. So lots of challenges, lots of questions, lots of dilemmas, and very few answers presented, very few morals to the story about what is the right choice on all of these things. Yeah, it's Michael, it's as if you're reading my mind. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say about this episode. I think, you know, at the end there, we're left with this dialogue between Pike and Mbenga, in which this central issue of the episode is presented, which I think is redemption versus justice, as I claimed before, but it's not resolved at all. And I think that's a good thing. This is a thought provoking episode. It doesn't preach. It doesn't insult its audience in any way. Yeah. It's it's an adult drama that Star Trek does very well. And it reminds me, if you wanted to compare it to uh, an episode of the original series, for example, we have that second season episode of the original series, A Private Little War, 
in which the question is posed, do we arm these people to even the odds in their fight? And there's a clear message there about what we were doing in Vietnam, but there wasn't really an answer given. I mean, it's yeah. just a dilemma for us to wrestle with. You know, Rodney, the last few episodes, I think, have really shown the power of this mission of the week format for Strange New Worlds. You know, they've talked about episodic television, but I'm not sure exactly that's what they're doing uh, in retrospect, but I call it the mission of the week. It allows very different moods and very different social messages mm -hmm. is each week, as opposed to a season-long story arc where there are, well, there are maybe little messages in each episode, but there's really one big message and social lesson per season. And uh, here we have a story about recovering from war atrocities, a musical episode next week. The previous episode was that Lower Decks crossover comedy. It makes for a lot more variety for the fans and doesn't require a Federation-wide threat every season, which is nice. I hope that the Starfleet Academy series that is beginning development, or at least it will after the writers and actors strikes conclude, whenever that is, uh, I hope that that new series learns the production design lessons from Strange New Worlds. And of course, because it's Starfleet Academy, doesn't make it a teen soap opera series either. Yeah, if I could say this, I and I hate to say it, Michael, because, you know, I've really enjoyed Discovery, but I'm exhausted with serial storytelling in Star Trek. I think Picard maybe did a better job with that. Discovery, you know, you and I, we've talked about Discovery shortcomings, you know, for example, you know, how they can't seem to generate enough material <laughs> for all the episodes in their you know, season-long story arc, and some of it seems padded, taking an entire episode to get through the galactic barrier, for example. Yeah. I'm afraid to say I've, I've kind of had it, you know. Strange New Worlds is really shining here in the ways that you mentioned, and it also allows for more of a ensemble cast, which we're not getting from yeah. Discovery. And as interesting as Michael Burnham is, you know, I want to learn more about the other people on that bridge. So I agree with you. I hope, you know, and I know season five is basically in the can now, but, you know, I hope going forward, you know, with these other series that hopefully they've learned their lesson. And for example, like you mentioned, next time we have a musical episode. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see this new series of Discovery once we get into the new year. And see what they have learned from Strange New Worlds and from a little bit more of the mission of the week. Yes, it'll be a season-long story arc, but apparently it's like a quest, uh, a search for something, not just a galaxy-wide threat. So I will be interested to see taking their established format of a season-long story uh, mm -hmm. and molding it in a way that isn't the, the crisis, end of all sentient life, end of all organic life, all that kind of thing. Uh, so right. I'll be interested to see what they do with that. I remember a while back, I think maybe when season one of Strange New Worlds came out, somebody online saying, what are they doing? Science fiction series are supposed to be season-long story arcs. That wasn't the exact words. That's what they were essentially saying. And, you know, we had a period of time there where we had a, a series, not Star Trek, but other series that were 10, 12 episodes long, but they all dropped at the same time. So people would binge through them over two or three days. And I think a season long story arc may work a little bit better in that format. 
than the one episode a week that Star Trek has been using. But I think That's one episode a week builds the fan base and builds enthusiasm and probably yes. makes the studio, CBS and Paramount, more money. And since season one of Discovery, the online streaming marketplace has went from an absolute beginner point to, I'm not sure we're at maturity yet because they still have problems making money, but the dynamics have changed a lot over the last few years since Star Trek essentially rebooted with Discovery. And so I hope that Star Trek overall, up to the top, they have learned that the direct continued episode, episode, episode uh, story arc may not work as well for Star Trek as the mission of the week with ongoing character arc development. And you know, Michael, I've learned that I don't really like to binge. It does something to me psychologically. I don't know what exactly it is. I'd actually much rather get an episode a week. So I, I like what Paramount Plus is doing. And I agree with you. It, you know, it generates more interest, more conversation. And there's plenty to discuss as we've seen these episodes, uh, including next week. I'm sure, you know, we'll have quite a bit to discuss with this musical episode, a first for the Star Trek franchise. Yeah, you know, from the preview, it kind of seems to me like it's going to be a technobabble space phenomenon causes goofy side effects story. And remember, yeah. in this context, goofy means strange, not funny. Right. In other words, some kind of thing that happens that results in a lot of singing in the episode. It'll be interesting to see what you and I can do in terms of analyzing it. Uh, I assume there will still be themes and philosophy and things to address, but uh, it may not be the kind of standard podcast for us, just like it's not the standard episode for mm -hmm. Star Trek. And has that preview made you think of Once More with Feeling, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode? That's what I thought of. When I heard musical episode, I did immediately think of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer musical episode where it was, I can't remember, was it, a, it was some kind of music spell or magic that caused mm -hmm. them to not being able to communicate with speech, but uh, using music only. So we will see. There are very few new ideas in the world. Yeah. And remember, creativity is innovation. So the idea of a musical episode, eh, other people have done it. How do we do it in Star Trek and Strange New Worlds that feels fresh and creative? That's the mark of a good, strong episode. All right. We thank you for joining us for this podcast. We'll be back next time to talk about this first ever Star Trek musical episode. Stay in touch with us on our social media feeds. We're on Mastodon, Twitter, Facebook, at Trek underscore Academy, and also Tumblr at Trek Academy without the underscore. And you can Google Star Trek Academy podcast and look for our red Vulcan hand salute logo. And don't forget, you can subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Star Trek Academy podcast.